Hello and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm Andy. And I'm John. We've assembled a list of hundreds of film scores that are considered worth talking about, and we've been assigning them to ourselves by random drawing. And this time, the luck of the draw gave us the score by Frank Churchill, Lee Harleen, and Paul Smith to the landmark 1937 animated feature film, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was adapted from the original Grimm Brothers fairy tale by a room full of writers, and it was directed by, well, David Hand is noted as a supervising director in the credits, but it was essentially directed by committee. But it was most definitely produced by, and indeed, really, if you want to use a more modern definition of directed in terms of making all of the final creative decisions about it, those were all done by Walt Disney. Andy, Mm -hmm. fill us in on Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. This section of the show is frequently absurd because we know that everyone has heard of the movie, but I think this is the most absurd it's ever been. I, uh, I'm not sure about, I mean, there's a lot of movies that a lot of people have seen. Oh yeah, I think most people have seen a lot of these movies and didn't need the part where we summarize it. I just think this is the most unneeded summary we've ever done. Can't wait. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs is Walt Disney's incredibly ambitious moonshot attempt to make a full-length, full-color, all-singing, all-dancing, animated feature film for everyone uh, that worked. (laughs) Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was animated by Hamilton Lusk, Vladimir Teitla, Fred Moore, Norman Ferguson, and others of the Nine Old Men, the famous grandmaster forefathers of animation that were Disney's original gurus and confidants. And according to the film's credits, it stars nobody. (laughs) There are no credited actors (laughs) in the film at all, but it does in fact star Adriana Casalotti as the voice of Snow White and then a bunch of other people as the dwarfs, and you probably haven't heard of any of them. So Snow White is about a middle-aged woman who is so horrified she just can't handle aging so she decides she's gonna kill her teenage daughter for having better skin than she has so her teenage daughter flees and gets a job keeping house in a mining community but then her mother catches up with her and kills her good enough (laughs) you know uh Well, no, not good enough, but... Uh... It's a fairy tale about a princess. Oh, fairy tale about a princess. Well, that's good enough. Okay. <laughs> All right, well, since you gave us that uncomfortably accurate plot synopsis, maybe we should just get some questions about it out of the way. It's her daughter? Snow White is her, is her stepdaughter at best, right? I think that's right. I think it's her stepdaughter. Because she's a princess, but she's also a scullery maid, you know, dressed in rags and tatters and scrubbing the sidewalk. Yes. I was trying to speak the, you know, psychological subtext here. It's a mother figure. Yeah. A mother figure who um, is so scared of aging that she ages herself a lot. Yes. That is very strange. But I think what that is showing is that she will do anything to avoid coming to terms with what she sees in the mirror realistically, to the point of self-destruction. Trivia for you. What is the first word that is uttered aloud in a Disney feature film? Uh, It's like spirit of the mirror, something like that? Yeah, but not spirit. Genie? The first word in any Disney feature film is slave. Oh, slave of the mirror. Slave of the mirror. 
live in the magic mirror. <laughs> well, it's, Come I mean, the whole thing is that guy's fault. <laughs> he could have just kept mum about Snow White being so pretty. He could have said, you look great. <laughs> that was clearly his job. I don't know what his problem is. He has some, some kind of a conscience. I think she's just looking at a mirror and she doesn't like what she sees. Although they've made an interesting creative decision by having her actually look quite good. Yeah, she does look, I mean, you know, people have types, but uh, the original queen before... <laughs> Not bad. Well, look, we can continue to talk about the uh, the meanings of the plot, but uh, I want to hear at the outset okay. what you think of Disney movies and this Disney movie in particular, because I actually don't know. Some people, you know, live by Disney movies and some people, eh, they have a problem with them. And I genuinely don't know what your take is. I don't think we've ever talked about classic Disney movies at any length before. Huh. Well, I think that I don't answer to either of those. I don't live by Disney movies, but I don't have a problem with them. You know, I saw the classic ones, got marched into the movie theaters to see them when I was a kid, when they would get re-released. And Yeah, you know, I think this was my first movie in the theater. Is that so? I know that some re-release of this movie was an enormous influence on my mother. She has cited it as sparking her interest in art and animation and filmmaking in very important ways when she was a teenager. Hmm. I mean, this is one of the most influential movies of all time. One of the most influential creative works of all time, if you think about the breadth of the tree that grows from this point into our current culture. It's true. Yeah. So to give a better answer to your question, what do I think of this movie and what do I think of Disney? I guess I have to start with, it's an astonishing accomplishment. It really is. If you give any thought to it, it kind of bowls you over with what they were able to achieve. Oh, for sure. I mean, the more attention you give it and the more historical context you give yourself to think about it, the more astounding this is. And the more it's easy to imagine the world just being knocked back like, oh, this can exist? Right. Oh, my God. Yeah, exactly. Well, let me ask you, since we're asking each other stuff, what, uh, what did you think about this music? This is as hard to hear with my smart brain as anything we've listened to on this show. Interesting. This goes deep into my childhood. I don't think that's an accident. I mean, I don't think that's... Yeah, it's how it works. I think it's how it works. I think the idea of going deep into is just baked into the recipe here. Yeah. I think that I approve of the music (laughs) in the sense that one approves of, like, the floor. Right. I, uh... I am not someone who had, like collected all the Disney soundtracks because I wanted to listen to them. I like them in the movies because I like the movies. And they really do form a tight, cohesive whole that even as a film score enthusiast, I had not really taken the time to pick this music away from the picture before last week. Right. Well, you can't is, I think, what I came away with. You can't pick this music away from the picture because the whole thing has been conceived from its very inception as being an expression of this same through line in such a close and intertwined way that it almost defies all of the other, you know, attempts to think about music and picture relationships that we've talked about on this show. It's such a pure music and picture relationship that it's almost its own animal. Well, so now I want to ask you, every other time on this show Uh that there has been an instance of Mickey Mousing in a live action movie, Uh you have expressed something on a spectrum between grudging tolerance and eye-rolling exasperation. (laughs) You have never been enthusiastic about it. Here in an animated feature, we have a scene where someone goes down a long flight of stairs. Is this someone a turtle? 
no oh i was thinking of no it's an evil queen oh okay storming down the stairs to her laboratory of black (laughs) magic and the music sounds like this do you feel that this is a different animal from what we've talked about before do you have a completely different opinion because you perceive it as a completely different thing i think the broad answer is yes i do see it as a different thing and a different animal and you know since we're talking about snow white i think we have to find it before but we got to say what mickey mousing means again it is a reference to the practice developed by Walt Disney through the 30s as he was first experimenting with attaching sounds to animated picture, the practice of using music as sound effects, using a musical scale going up to mirror the action of something going up on the screen. Yeah, that was the big breakthrough in uh, what year is Steamboat Willie? 28, 1928. Steamboat Willie that everyone has seen a few seconds of. Right. It was a sensation because it was synced sound to animation, which people hadn't seen cartoons making sound before because cartoons don't actually do anything. They're just drawings. So uh, this was such a delight. And the conception was everything will happen with a sound or with a beat because they had no ability to overdub anything. So they just had to record the entire thing in one take. It's incredible to imagine. Yeah, there's no multi-track recording. So whatever you want to be on the soundtrack, you have to do it all in one go. And so whoever's playing music and whoever has the sound effects and whoever's doing the voices, they all gather in a room with a microphone and just do it in time to picture. The best way to get that to happen, according to a certain time, is, you know, to put a metronome on. So the very conception of putting sound to cartoons is musical from the get-go. It can't not be musical, because that's the only way to get it to line up with anything. Disney soon discovered that it was more cost-effective, essentially, to have, you know, whooshes and smacks and things moving around to have sound effects for that. In the music, it was more reproducible. You know, you could rehearse it and you could get it to come out right in a way that was more controllable than, you know, the live foley that they had to do at the same time. It became very much a calling card that the music was transcribing the action for you, Mickey Mousing it. So key in working out how they would do this and coming up with the idea of the click track, which I don't know, have we talked about click track on this show before? We've certainly said the words click track. The person who is often credited with inventing the click track is Carl Stalling, who is most famous as the composer of hundreds, I think I'm entitled to say, of Looney Tunes cartoons for uh, Warner Brothers. But... He actually entered the movie business through Walt Disney because they knew each other in Kansas City before Walt Disney came out to Hollywood. I think the first system they had was they animated essentially a conductor on the screen of like a waving line that would go up and down and they would try to play to that. And then Stalling said, if you gave each musician, you know, one earpiece, they can listen to a steady click that is synced to the movie because we produce the steady click by just scratching it directly onto the sound strip on the film so that we know exactly what frame it's going to click on. Yeah, and they would use the frame rate of the film strip going by to calculate the tempo that they wanted. You know, film's going at 24 frames a second. So, you know, if you punch a hole every 12th frame, then you're going to get, you know, 120 beats per minute. 
So the clicking, which continued to be how Hollywood scoring was done for many decades after this, came to be referred to not by a beats per minute, but by how many frames apart the clicks were. You know, a 12-frame click turns out to be 120 beats per minute, and so on and so forth, do the arithmetic. That's the system, yeah, Carl Stalling made. Right, so he was with Disney for a few years before he left and ended up at Warner Brothers, but apparently, at least in one recounting I read, Walt wanted to come up with gags and storylines like they'd been doing, then write music that synced with it, and Stalling said, you could make the whole thing musical, you could write music and then have everything in the cartoon dance or at least move in sort of a rhythmically satisfying way to the music. They sort of went both routes at once. Disney said, all right, we'll do your idea, what we'll call it Silly Symphonies. So they, through the 30s, they were doing two different sort of tracks of cartoons. One was the Mickey Mouse and eventually Donald Duck and other people. They're not people. <laughs> They're not people. Oh no? The Mickey Mouse cartoons, that was Disney's story first style. And then these Silly Symphonies that at least ostensibly were music forward. And ultimately, when you look back at these things, they converge pretty quickly, at least in my eyes, because to go back to where we started, they're very, very tightly linked in both cases. Yeah, they called the tight linking Mickey Mousing because people just called any cartoons Mickey Mouse for a while there. So Carl Stalling, as well as a bunch of the other people who worked in the music department for Disney, got their starts playing movie theater organs. You know, I think this is a job we've talked about on previous shows where there'd be a guy at the theater who had seen the film a few times and had like a catalog of little tunes of, you know, references to specific things that he could pull out and weave together and kind of quilt this accompaniment to the silent pictures. Stalling did that and Frank Churchill did that. I think it's so fascinating that that is really the underlying skill behind the way the music gets put to picture in feature films of this kind. Well, it's certainly what's behind it. But as we've just been saying, this very particular technical process that creates cartoons that is different from the way that normal movies are made somewhat led to a distinct musical approach. Yeah, well, exactly. Everything has to be meticulously planned out to the second and the frame. Yeah, that's what I'm asking, because something is different, right? Something is different about this to you? Something is absolutely different about this to me. The way that cartoons lineage comes from the understanding that everything is musical because of the necessity of timing things out. And when you're animating something, you don't get to just photograph somebody speaking and then however many frames it takes the lips to move up and down is however many frames there are of it. You have to count out the frames. How many frames should I devote to the lip going up and then to the lip going down and on and on ad nauseum to every single gesture? Because that endeavor was born conjoined with a musical timeline, it has a special relationship, which is a relationship that I feel like Disney understood and wanted and found ways to put into everything that he could for the rest of his life. Because it's not, I mean, we just gave kind of a technical genealogy of why it would be that way, but it's not just a constraint. Yeah, yeah. It has some artistic value in itself when you do that. Absolutely, it does, yes. You know, listening to this music, not a lot of this music, I mean, I think these songs are great. I think these are gems of songs. But the, you know, interstitial underscore 
I don't think any of the music is particularly distinguished qua music, you know. I don't think the orchestrational art is on a par with, uh, you know, what Korngold was doing at the same time. None of it is, like, particularly special composition. But absolutely, the special relationship that it has with the pictures is eye-opening, is nearly jaw-dropping because of how tightly connected they are in their conception. So the standard John objection to Mickey Mouse, (laughs) I don't need to be told that he's going upstairs, I can see that he's going upstairs. Why is it okay to be told what you can see in a cartoon? I don't mean to be putting you on the spot. I was just curious about this myself. I was trying to figure it out. Yeah, well, it's a good question. It feels easy to say, well, because it's a cartoon, because it's a drawing, because it's not real photographs of real living things. We need extra help in imagining that they're alive and imbuing them with realism. But I don't think that's right. These characters are alive. The dwarfs, the way Snow White dances around, the little woodland creatures, they have like a beyond reality quality. They're super realistic, or not in the sense of hyper-realistic, obviously, but in the sense that they're expressing, you know, the underlying ichor of what such beings, uh, uh, (laughs) you know, would be about. The animation is so well observed and carefully calibrated down to its frame-by-frame movement. And the fact that that frame-by-frame movement was conceived in lockstep with the actual beats on a musical page, it gives this feeling when you see the completed effect that the music around them is a necessary part of the expression of these characters and these actions. It really does feel transcendental to me. It feels like the music is part of this larger-than-life expression of something that is bursting with energy and life. In effect, it's very common to, especially these old Disney movies, is the forest is teeming with life and all of the life is cute and Mm -hmm. doing funny Mm -hmm. things. And there's a palpable sense of teeming, you know? Yeah. And, you know, the music is just on the team team. Uh, (laughs) It's just part of the ebullient effervescence of the energy of everything just bubbling through its way has to come out and be expressed this way. It it feels necessary that it's there. I feel all of that. Something is teeming. That's what I kept coming back to. It's just almost overwhelming how much art per second there is in an animated feature. Everything is an artistic decision, and that's just not true of live-action film. And it's part of the point. Film is, uh, who is it, Godard or someone said film is truth 24 times a second, and then some wag can say film is a lie 24 times a second. And neither of those things is true. But animated film is art 24 times a second. Very literally, care and artistic choice making has gone into every 24th of a second that you experience. That's a different relationship to art and to time than is normal. Yeah, time. You just don't usually receive communications at that high a rate.
And it was interesting to me to read them saying why there was skepticism about an animated feature in the 30s before this came out, because people thought, well, you'll just get worn out. You can't do that for more than eight minutes. And like people's eyes will hurt. <laughs> they just saw animation as such a kind of bonbon. It was just some kind of sugar treat, a dense clump of sugar. And you can't eat like a whole three course meal of sugar. You go crazy. And then it turns out that you can. <laughs> and that was Disney's incredible vision and achievement here. It's so much more intense an experience than we remember because we've gotten so yeah. disturbingly accustomed to it over the years. But it's fairly miraculous. Yeah, that's why I kept coming back to my mother's account of being absolutely blown over that this was possible. You know, she saw it three or four times in the theater the same day. And so I was trying to keep in touch with that original marvel of... How can this be? I love these anecdotes about the premiere. The animators, you know, they never got to go to a fancy premiere, but they got to go to this and they were all the stars. And Ward Kimball said he was sitting behind Clark Gable. Yeah, I saw this too. Yeah. When the dwarves are mourning for Snow White in the glass coffin at the end, he was sniffling and asked for a handkerchief. Clark Gable was. Clark Gable was sniffling. The ears himself. He was moved by these cartoons. And a different anecdote that someone was sitting next to John Barrymore huh. and... When the queen was making her way through the fog in the little boat, and it's just this beautiful scenery, Barrymore was bouncing in his seat with excitement, like, yes, 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 this is amazing. If you had not been prepped on animated movies by your entire childhoods, yeah. this would be revelatory. It's so dense. Dense. Yeah, I really liked when you said that it was about the density of art per time, and maybe that's why the music track feels so necessary to me it's like a spillover you don't have enough visual bandwidth to take in all of this intention and decision and creativity per unit time you need an extra dimension to give you all of the information behind all of these decisions that are raining down upon you well i don't know if it's that you need it i think you do need it I mean, how, how silly do I sound talking about this? I, how highfalutin am I? Not uh, at all. It deserves it. I mean, I think that they were actually aspiring to some kind of Gesamtkunst, you know, <laughs> the old Wagnerian idea that... God bless you. Yeah. The old Wagner idea that you make a new transcendent thing when the multiple arts are joined together... They just started to develop this repertoire of ways that they could interact. This idea that you could have perfect control over seemingly natural things, you know, leaves falling or bird flying, that it could fly both naturally and perfectly. There's an excitement in the work that they did about that idea. And yeah, maybe that's the answer to why I don't mind the music playing somebody down the stairs is because... It's not just somebody coming down the stairs. It's a choreographed, artistically decided upon dance of somebody coming down the stairs. Every action is controlled and perfected such that even when a cute turtle falls down the stairs, right. he falls right on every beat. And you sort of are aware of some animators sitting with the pad and thinking, what is the best next 24th of a second? What is the most communicative next 24th of a second? The amount of thinking and yeah. feeling about motion. Yeah, you can feel the years, thousands of person years of effort, essentially, that went into this 85 minutes of film. You can feel it. And so every motion, it's not just a motion, it's this hyper-considered realization of emotion, yeah, that needs 
extra expression along the way. Well, I know that when I hear that kind of an effect, that kind of onomatopoeic musical effect in any context, if it's delivered right, if they kind of draw me to it, I can experience at least a taste of that same feeling of focused attention to motion itself. I'm willing to go there in the middle of Gone with the Wind if Max Steiner tells me to. Yeah, okay. I mean, fair enough. Of course, every film has a lot of time and effort poured into it. Oh, but it's not so much that I feel that there is control and that I'm respecting some artistic effort. It's that someone saw it at some point. Maybe it was just the composer, but someone experienced looking at it through eyes that were concerned with motion. Mm -hmm. And they are suggesting those eyes to me. They're saying, look at this and notice motion. Just notice sheer visual activity, dynamism. I'm willing to have my attention pointed at such a thing in the middle of a drama. But then when you've objected every time and said, what does that have to do with the drama? That's stupid. I haven't always known. What does it have to do with the drama? I just know that it has to do with my movie going interests. Okay. Some of which are, uh, my mind wanders. And it's because <laughs> sometimes feels good when, uh, when the music says like, hey, look at this. That thing is going from left to right. And I'm like, ah, oh, that yeah. is what I noticed. It, it communicates on... <laughs> a very genuine childlike level like this is what your brain cares about your rods and cones are noticing this the kind of amazing thing about this movie that makes it so transcendent is that disney's spiritual vision such as it is fits so well the medium is the message perfectly here like what he believed in was your inner child is to be worshipped your inner child is the key to everything and there's something so pure about the way you're experiencing the cinema because it's so much color and light and motion and music so that then when it's this story about you know the goodness of innocence of beauty of childhood or whatever that feels like completely whole it feels like that is what it has been saying in its substance all along to me. I'm glad to hear that you have access to this wonderful feeling of deep synthesis and artistic expression overflowing such that it needs to come out around your ears. Uh, I'm glad you have access to that in a way that I was grumpy about in the past. but uh... And that I was dopey about in the past. <laughs> well, I've certainly been sneezy about it the whole time. As I was listening to it without the movie on, I kept being surprised about how easily and naturally it found its way to these things. Because something I have taken the time to try and pick apart in the past is Carl Stallings' Looney Tunes scores that are much more manic and part of the comic effect is the shotgun leaping from one thing to another, tempos, rhythms, instrumentation. It's funny, you know, bang, and the music will just jump when it has to. And I found that fascinating because it added this sort of non-musical concept of time to music. So I have in the past spent some time listening to that and trying to hear what it is musically. And I kind of thought, when I was watching the movie, I thought, when I pull this music away, it's going to probably sound like that. It must be jumping all around, because look, it caught that, and it caught that, and it caught that. But 
then, no, it all kind of adheres to a melodic conception at the same time. A melodic conception. Yeah. That's because it is melodically conceived. For this era of Disney work, this was the technique that they came up with to be able to put all of the sound against the timeline in a repeatable and refinable way. They wrote it all down on music. Essentially, the sonic storyboard of these cartoons was written down in something called bar sheets, which looks like a sketch score, you know, has a line of music, not very much musical information, but a steady grid of bar lines. Then everything that happens in the cartoon is written on top of the music. Right, essentially in rhythmic notation. They basically notate the visual as though it's another instrument. Yeah, that's right. So all of these decisions, they've all been made already. The music is going to go like this, and we're going to draw things doing these actions. All of those decisions have made, which is so different than how composers work today than I've ever worked. I don't think I've ever had to write the music like alongside the director deciding what's going to happen, you know, and these committees, rooms full of people deciding what's going to happen. And it all gets boiled down onto essentially a score, a manuscript. It's such a different way of doing things. And I think that's behind this magical integration that I feel that it's part of the same hyper considered decisions. Yeah, that's a good term for the feeling of the whole thing. Even the music that, as you said, comes fairly directly out of silent movie practice. Because it has been subjected to this hyper-considered relationship to time and to the visual, it lands with more impact here. The chase music at the climax of the movie when the dwarfs chase the witch to the cliff edge, it sounds a great deal like the King Kong music that we were, you know, a little bit critical of for being just so much tumult. Yeah. It's all the same techniques. It's almost the same motive of da-da-da. But here, every single turn has been considered for its specific effect. In that exact moment, everything speaks. Yeah, it's true. had the same thought and I was trying to articulate to myself why I was so much better predisposed to this music than I was to Steiner's King Kong music. I don't think there's intrinsically musically too much to distinguish this from just hearing a similar section of Steiner tumult for King Kong doing whatever. Yeah, it's I guess it's the sense that with King Kong it's reflexive. King Kong, he really is just at his metaphorical movie organ and just like following along. And in Snow White, it's proactive. I don't even think, I mean, I think King Kong is actually attentive. Of course it's attentive. It's just not obsessively considered, as you keep saying. It's not precise down to the frame, certainly, or even to the gesture. Every single gesture in this movie, both musical and visual, has been talked out at length in advance. I think maybe the difference is Steiner gives me this feeling of subservience, that the music is doing the bidding of the picture after the fact. And this, just the sense that it was conceived hand in hand, the music and the picture, feels manifestly evident. 
you know, I, I can't advocate that pictures are scored this way. You know, you, know, you have to score things after they've already been edited. Yeah, like, like, I'm not saying that, boy, if everything could be done the way Snow White has done, that's what's missing. In no, right, well, it creates a very particular effect. It creates it does. artistically peculiar... I'm just trying to wrap my head around... Uh, why you don't want this all the time. Why I don't want this all the time. Yes, you have to write the music after the picture is already there, but, you know, it's good when it doesn't feel that way. And so this is its own special case. I think the strength of the animated technique is that it allows this intense experience of motion and time and individual moments. The weakness is that it's very hard to construct a convincing through line. I mean, that's what you take the years to try to build, and you need all of these managers to keep steering the ship to make sure you don't break the thread that makes the whole movie work as a movie. And, you know, when we talk about what's the deep meaning to try to understand what a score is doing, these composers had, you know, there's no room to think about that when they're... Hey, maybe we should talk about these composers. Yeah, we should. We should right. talk about all kinds of other stuff that's going on in the score. But when the score paper is like one millimeter from your face the whole time, so to speak, because you have to think about the next beat, there's less room for doing large-scale things. And there are some really beautiful large-scale things that happen in this movie, but... Most of the experience is about moments, cared for moments being delivered one after another. Yeah, tell us about who these guys are. <laughs> okay, so there are three composers who are credited, Frank Churchill, Lee Harleen, and Paul Smith. And they all had particular kind of strengths and jobs here, but they would all work on all aspects of it. Frank Churchill is mostly credited with the songs, but he also worked on the underscore. Yeah, it's hard to know exactly. There's so much behind-the-scenes material about this out there. We may have missed the place where you could know exactly, but I don't know exactly how the labor was divided. But the impression I got was that Churchill was kind of the melody guy. Yeah. He would sit at a piano and come up with tunes for everything, including underscore. Come up with songs, come up with mood music, but it would all be sort of in song-like forms. He was hired originally by Disney as a pianist. He had the job that Donald O'Connor has at the beginning of Singing in the Rain, right? Of playing mood and music on the piano for silent film sets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then when sound came, these people who had already been working as musicians, oh, now you could actually maybe play music in the movies right. somehow. Cool. Yeah, and he got hired, and his big mark that he had made prior to this was he wrote Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf, yeah. which is perfect. Who's afraid of the big bad wolf? Big bad wolf? Big bad wolf? Who's afraid of the big bad wolf? And that made sort of the previous huge splash from the Disney company. Everyone was singing that song. I think that was what tipped Disney off to the idea that if you focus on songs, you can sell songs. Get a catchy tune and yeah. makes everything go. So he wrote Underscore, but I'm not sure whether he ever fully arranged and orchestrated the underscore. It might always have gone to a second musician to do that work. I'm just not sure in the earlier scores. But I think that that's at least how things started on this one, that he was coming up with all of the melodic material and Harleen was going to arrange it. Yeah, that's the impression I got too, is that he was the melody guy. And I mean, he Harleen had more explicit musical training. Yeah, he was more of a classical guy. And his Silly Symphony scores have some classical types of touches. I mean, you know, if you listen to this sequence where Snow White has just run away from the huntsman, 
she's in the spooky forest and she's imagining that all of the trees are grotesque fingers reaching out to her and the animals are coming to get her and everything, which is you know a wonderful sequence. You can hear that, Harleen, or maybe this one was Smith studied you know the same kind of Wagnerian school that Steiner had. Yeah, I think Harleen and Smith were the trained craftsmen yeah. guys who made these arrangements. But then, at least in one place, I saw a suggestion that Churchill sort of had a nervous episode, couldn't handle the stress, mm-hmm. and left for a while, and so Harleen sort of took over main composing duties, worked with the material that had been left, but ended up writing a good chunk of it in addition to orchestrating it. And Smith seems to have been sort of additional music by, kind of. So that's why all three of them are credited. Harleen was interviewed about that very thing, about having to kind of take up the thread from a different composer. Yeah, I mean, this interview is, I think, probably not the actual diction of Lee Harleen, but he says in it, tactfully, owing to a recent change in our personnel here, a part of the thematic material for the picture was written by another composer. I now have to write additional thematic material to complete the picture and, of course, must try to maintain the general atmosphere of what already has been composed. The latter has been recorded and naturally we cannot discard it. So fitting my ideas into those of the previous composer and escaping any hint of patchwork is not easy. Don't misunderstand me. The other composer's work is not being criticized. It quite likely is as good as what I might have done. But you understand it isn't mine and I have to make other music which must be kept in character. I imagine he didn't say any of those words. That sounds like a magazine writer, but (laughs) I'm sure he conveyed the sense of that. So yeah, Churchill, I think, wrote underscore, but you can identify it as... Churchill underscore, at least based on the cue sheet information that is out there, he's credited for a lot of these underscore scenes that are scored with little tunes that aren't the tunes of the songs. They aren't themes necessarily for anything. They are just the tune of that underscore, but they're song-like. The one that's been in my head all day, I think it's when Dopey's trying to wrangle the soap when he's learning how to wash his hands. That goes... Oh, that's Dopey's theme. That keeps coming back. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That one's an actual theme in that it's associated with Dopey over and over. Yeah, it's called Dopey's theme. But there's some that are like... I think this one is called on the cue sheet, Morning in the Country... This one that goes da 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 <laughs> Which you hear in several different scenes. You hear it, I think, quite beautifully in the moment when she starts meeting How them. Do you do? She sits up in the bed and says, and you must be Doc. And there's this lovely flow that comes in at that point, and it's this melody. Tell me who you are. Let me guess. I know. You're Doc. What? Why, 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 yes. Yes. That's true. And you're... You're bashful. I love this lovely flow. I think this technique of elevating speech with music, and the speech isn't exactly sung, but it's also not totally prose, it's heightened a little bit. I think Disney very much had an idea that he wanted it to be operatic, or at least like an operetta. It really has a recitative kind of quality. I really like it. The music is just filling in these little pads for each little phrase of word. She doesn't know Put a little thing here. Put a little beat under this. She can even make herself invisible. 
He was very concerned, Disney, with when the characters would break out into a song. You know, it's a very modern sounding qualm to think, you know, oh, why would somebody just start singing? It's unrealistic. And it was a little surprising for me to read that that was something that Disney was concerned with as well. He wanted to prepare the transitions from not song into song. So this kind of musical heightening of speech was the way that he wanted to do it. Oh, she'll never find me here. And if you let me stay, I'll keep house for you. I'll wash and sew and sweep and cook and cook. Yeah, it's nice that you pointed out there because that one's not even verse. Right. Some of them, she's actually saying rhymed patter mm-hmm. and some of them she's speaking what you could sort of in retrospect see is a verse of the song that's to come yeah like this is when you know after she's done being scared in the forest and she picks herself up and starts talking to all the animals and the rhymed couplets i didn't mean to frighten you but you don't know what i've been through and all because i was afraid I'm so ashamed of the fuss I've made. Again, it's this hyper-consideration of what exactly she's going to say and how rhythmic and poetic it's going to be. And, you know, we saw some of the minutes of meetings where they were talking through exactly what she's... I mean, it really is very highly committee-driven. I thought that was fantastic to see them two years before the movie came out discussing beats of music. Yeah. Something that I really took away from reading those minutes is Walt Disney really made this movie. You know, I always thought, well, he produced it and he made it happen, but did he make these movies or did he just sit behind a desk writing checks? And you read these meetings, he's doing everything. He's like picturing each shot and talking about absolutely everything. That guy really made this movie. If you look at the silly symphonies that they made over the preceding few years, you see them experimenting with a variety of different ways of getting in and out of song and getting the song-like quality into dialogue. This is their uh, Pied Piper Silly Symphony, I think this is 33, where the whole thing is sung, but it's this kind of recitative type of singing. There's not really a song, it's just all opera time. I'll give this bag of gold, this bag of shine, gold to anyone who rid us of the rats. Another thing that was done in musicals in the 30s, I saw Richard Rogers had done several musicals where he had done this extensively that he called musical dialogue, where they don't sing at all and it's not really song-like, but it's very strictly rhythmically synced to a musical accompaniment the whole time. Citizens of New York, I behold this dedication with true municipal pride and a feeling of elation. So in order to be with you, I had to shorten my vacation, but I just had to take part. The Snow White solution is subtly more naturalistic than that, but still very song-like, where she specifically resists saying it in synchrony with the line in the music that corresponds to it. Sometimes you can hear her resisting, like here where she says that she needs a place to sleep at night. It's going to be all right, but I do need a place to sleep at night. It's not natural to put a pause there. I think she's just put it there to buck the rhythm that is implied for the song tune. When she enters the cottage for the first time and is looking around at all of the dirt, oh, what dirty children live here. Oh, we should clean up. It gradually becomes whistle while you work. You don't even realize when it starts. First, she says several lines that are matched to musical phrases, even though what she's saying is not rhymed. She says, Oh, it must be seven little children. And look at this table. Sheep. Several untidy little children. Must be seven little children. And from the look of this table, seven untidy little children. 
And then she starts saying things that not only is it showing you where the phrases are, but it is actually proposing if she were singing it, she'd sing it to these notes. And just look at that fireplace. And just look at that fireplace. It's covered with it's dust. It's covered with dust. <laughs> and look, cobwebs and look, everywhere. Cobwebs everywhere. My, my, my. What a pile of dirty dishes. It just starts to gather subliminally in the background that this is all music. Now you wash the dishes. You tidy up the room. You clean the fireplace. And I'll use the broom. Then it becomes Whistle While You Work. She's recruited all the animals to do the house chores. Yeah, and then all of the chores are musical in such a charming way. And so this is the real brilliant higher level kind of Mickey Mousing where the Mickey Mousing is in the arrangement. It's yeah. not the event. It is the texture. That is fantastic. You mean like the muted brass for when they're using the turtle's belly as a washboard? Yeah, he's like being tickled. Oh, right. That he's laughing there. Wah, 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 wah. You're right. Yeah, the music is the laughter. You know, when the birds come and water the flowers, the way the water drops down after they punch a hole in the sheet or whatever, it's just such an attractive musical drop. Yeah, this is the kind of stuff that I was tempted with Looney Tunes and now with this to try to pick apart because my brain, it's so hard to hear that those are just triplets. Triplets like you might see on any score. Feels like they added some birds to this song, yeah. right? <laughs> These flutes playing parallels and then little pops with the muted trumpets. These things gel so completely in your eyes and brain that it always yeah. excites me, kind of like I'm seeing, you know, source code when I see <laughs> the music for you these things. You see the Matrix, yeah. And it's like, oh, it's just da 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 Oh, look at that. They somehow made a bird just by writing that on the page. And that has definitely been the kind of excitement I've had about movie music and why I've tried, tried, tried to see the scores when you can see them since I was a kid because it seemed like there are things Things you can do in movie music that aren't music even. And they're like, oh no, they are. It's just music that's working so well that I forgot that it was music. And that happens consistently in these kinds of arrangements for me. I mean, that's what I mean, that this is like such a pure distillation of the concept of movie music that I kind of appreciate it on a different level than just the music of it. It's so purely linked. You know, the linkage is front and center, even above the actual music. Yeah. And this kind of stuff is why I'm saying these are actually really fantastic orchestrations because it's about picking the exact right instruments mm -hmm. that just seem natural to you. And there is some beautiful creativity on that front in this movie, like this, uh, this organ that Trumpy is playing. It's something that they <coughs> took a lot of care with, like and it really is a brilliant feet, creation. They keep in rhythm. You see, I washed them both today, and I can't do nothing with them. And the Disney company loved this so much, they went back to it a lot. Oh, yeah, I was going to say that this organ, the way this organ has been constructed out of, like, you know, blowing it across the neck of a bottle-type sounds. Yeah, I think the bass is bottles, and then there's ocarinas in the middle register. Uh -huh. <laughs> And then there's some kind of whistles at the top. Uh, and it creates just a sense of an entire keyboard's worth of, which is fantastic. 
Yeah, this organ sound is just like the sound of Disney. You hear this specific instrument all over the place at Disneyland. I want to come back to Disneyland. Yeah, it's the teacups. It's the teacups. Because they used it in the unbirthday song. Sure. It's the enchanted tiki room. And it's an imaginary instrument is what I'm saying. This is like a musical equivalent of the animation vision. Yeah, that's true. So let's talk through these songs, because these songs, this was a big deal, not just as an animated movie, but as a musical. This was the first feature film soundtrack where the original recordings were released, I believe. This is the first real soundtrack album that was put out, and it was a big, big hit. The first soundtrack album for a feature film. Yes, I think that's true. And these songs were all big sellers. Yeah, let's just talk through them. How many are there? Six? Something like that? Something like that. Isn't the very first thing that you hear Snow White say, they use that fading up and down through rhyming verses into the I'm wishing song, right? I think that's when she first speaks. She says, you want to know a secret? Promise not to tell. Yeah. Want to know a secret? Promise not to tell. Those two lines are spoken leading into the song. Do you know where those two lines wound up? In, oh, 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 in uh, the Beatles. Uh-huh. Yeah, Julia Lennon used to sing that song to little John Lennon, and that became this. Is that the first time we've played the Beatles on this show? Might be. Oh, did we just play the Beatles? Yeah, we did. Uh, Yes, I don't think there's occasion to play the Beatles because it has nothing to do with this usually. But you found a way. Yeah. Way to go. Thank you. Honestly, I think it would be great to do A Hard Day's Night at some point. Okay, sure. Put that in the bucket. I'm wishing. So I'm wishing, I think I read this was the last one they stuck in there, and it sort of feels like uh, it's just doing a little bit of work at the beginning here, but it's a lovely little conceit. It's a lovely gimmick, you know, the echo effect is so charming. So this first scene where she's in the courtyard at the wishing well, and then the prince shows up to sing the last two notes of the song. This, when I was a kid, felt the most conspicuously old-fashioned. It's the most sort of straight operetta in the whole thing, it feels to me, anyway. But I kind of love that now. I feel like this movie wonderfully gives access to the aesthetics of an earlier era because it has done them with so much care and so much grace that I feel like this can be a kind of, for me, and I think for lots of people because Snow White is one of the oldest movies that kids still watch. Probably the oldest movie that is regularly watched by uh, little kids. That's a good point. It has a kind of Rosetta Stone quality of like, Okay, this works as a Disney movie, and they're still making Disney movies, but it also has the aesthetics of a turn of the 20th century operetta. Yeah. You kind of feel the sense of that here. So even though it's old-fashioned, it's not... uh, I mean, I was about to say it's not corny. It is a little corny if you're looking for corn, especially when he goes, Today! It is I, I'm here. I mean, the prince is the corniest thing in this movie, right? Oh, of course. Uh, Almost by design, I think. Also, this, you know, first scene when she first speaks and sings is when you get smacked with the very distinctive voice of Adriana Casalotti. Yeah. Make a wish into the well. That's all you have to do. And if you hear it echoing, your wish will soon come true. 
How do you feel about it? I, I think she does a nice job. It's a very distinctive voice, and Disney uh, endeavored to keep it that way. Yeah, yeah, I've seen these things about how he tried to make sure she was never anything else. Yeah, he didn't want to ruin the effect of Snow White by allowing you to hear that voice in other places. He wanted it to be unique to this special magical thing. Well, she managed to have one other great impact on culture, which is confusing children everywhere about the meaning of the word wherefore by misdelivering a line in The Wizard of Oz. It's true. She only had two <laughs> other film jobs, and one of them was two years later in The Wizard of Oz. Here she is singing along with the Tin Man. The Wherefore art thou, Romeo? Yeah, that's not what that line means. <laughs> I hadn't thought to attribute the <laughs> the misapprehension of wherefore to her, but uh, all right. Well, it seems like, uh, Quirk, like I pointed out earlier when she says, I need a place to sleep at night. <laughs> it's sort of the same take. Do you know the only other time that she appears in a film? I read it earlier and I've already forgotten. No, wait, it is another famous movie. It's she's a, famous, in it's a Wonderful famous Life, movie. right? Yeah, she's singing in Martini's Bar in It's a Wonderful Life when Jimmy Stewart goes there. Uh, I think the first time when he's quietly praying to himself. I mean, it is sad to think that Disney might have been responsible for stifling her career. We also have to grant that she has an unusual <laughs> singing voice. I just want to say that her house that she lived in through the rest of her life here in Los Angeles is not too far away from me, here on Larchmont Boulevard. And you can walk past it, and it's still got very manicured greenery outside of it and i think there's a wishing well on the property there and she was really living kind of in a snow white fairy tale cottage for the rest of her days yes she had a snow white costume she would make appearances and she embraced if she was just going to have been snow white she was really going to have been snow white and she was it's a fine line for me because it is an old-fashioned aspiration that she has to have that very fast vibrato which a lot of the time it's not even vibring very much. It's just kind of uh, tremolando. But I was thinking about it. I thought it's actually probably right for this movie. She's just a little girl. She's not an actual opera singer. She's just some teen girl who likes to sing opera style. And that's exactly what it sounds like. And it does contribute to the sense of complete innocence, which is the point mm. of the character, I think, even though it's a little warbly. And then the prince comes in. Who's this? Who's the singer? Stockwell, someone? Uh, yes, it's Harry Stockwell. Ooh. Yeah. Hello. Ooh. Did I frighten you? Hey, he probably thought the prince. That sounds like a pretty big park. Let me see. Uh, let me see what I get. <laughs> and then he looked in. <laughs> Doesn't even get a name. <laughs> yeah. And how many songs does he get? Let's ask him. <laughs> one song. I have but one song. Well, he gets to reprise it, at least. At the end, we hear this song again. I wanted to point out this spot because I really feel like this is a treatment and an effect that is in the drinking water. 
you know, we're looking at Snow White's coffin, and I guess we're supposed to know that she's going to come back to life, but the characters on screen certainly don't. The dwarves are all grieving, kneeling in front of her, and it seems like it is a very sad scene. And yet the music is this warm and ethereal-sounding thing that combines with something superficially sad in this elegiac way that makes it feel bigger than just sad. It's not just sad, it's important that it's sad, and it's grand that it's sad in a way that even isn't sad anymore. I just feel like this is such an important thing to do with music in a movie. Well, yeah, it's a religious effect. I sure. Mean, the whole last sequence has a kind of quasi-religious feeling to it. We could talk about what that means, but let's work our way there. I mean, these lyrics just barely mean anything about the story. The point is that it sounds the way the song that the prince should sing should sound. <laughs> and you see her swooning, listening to him. What do you think? Have they met before? Oh, good question. That's a good interpretation. I'm going to stick with that interpretation because it really makes sense. He's the guy who rides by on his horse some of the days and like, you know, they've established a bit of a rapport. Oh, they wink at each other through the trees. And this time he comes in and uh, sings with her, something like that. Or maybe he sings the song to her all the time. That's why she's so uh, embarrassed about it. Yeah, you always say that one song. So when she's wishing for the one she loves to find her today, is it a specific one she loves or it's a fantasy? Because later when she sings that someday her prince will come, we have to believe it's this very particular prince. She, In fact, she says he was it so romantic. certainly is, yes. And the dwarfs ask, was he strong? Something like that? What do they ask strong her? Strong and tall? Yeah. And like, no, not really. She is. He cuts a dashing figure. All right. Yeah, so this one song, this is, they play this in the main title. Well, yeah, the first thing you hear. Which I didn't expect. I thought for sure that, you know, the iconic tune out of this movie that is going to be the first thing we hear is Sunday by Prince Will Come. It shows up pretty soon after in the main title, right. and then the ending, the off-into-the-sunset ending is Sunday Way But yeah, I think they thought one song was the takeaway signature song here. Yeah, I think they're wrong. They were wrong, yeah. Take her far into the right, so then the queen... Find first of all, she has an amazing chair. Uh, like that chair, I had forgotten <laughs> the, about that. The queen's throne? Yeah, it's fantastic. I'm going to go look at it now. It's like a, a peacock throne because she's so vain. Oh, you're right. Look at that. Yeah. You, know, you like talking about characters' tables. Look at that chair. <laughs> yeah, make, make the thrones your thing, Andy. So this hit on the box oh that the huntsman is supposed to put the heart in with vibraphone. Mm-hmm. I would never have thought to do you that, but do what a great sealing in the fateful significance of this box with a little thong on a vibraphone. In and then uh, the scene where he tries to kill her and loses her nerve scored with serious dramatic scoring very carefully synced with the back and forth in a natural way it doesn't feel herky-jerky that you're cutting back between her innocent with the bird and him would you smile for me? (laughs) that's better your mom and papa can't be far it feels easy but you're getting him stepping up on her. Yeah, the back and forth is handled very deftly. I mean, it's almost as though they planned everything out about this scene ahead of time, about how it was going to go back and forth. This is the kind of a thing that could, you know, sound manically mannered if I was accompanying the scene as a improv accompanist. Oh, I have to go be over here now? I have to be over here now? Jumping back and forth. But because you figured out all these moves ahead of time, then you can have this lovely flow. Mm-hmm. 
I beg you, Your Highness. Right, he says, go, run, hide. I don't understand. She's mad, jealous of you. She'll stop at nothing. And these things get hits. She's mad, boom, jealous of you, don't. Run, run away, hide. In the woods, anywhere. There's nothing Never musical about his lines, but the music is there punctuating it in a way that just wouldn't be possible in any other format. Okay, so then she's in the glade and she sings with a smile and a song, which I think they said may not even have been written specifically for this and was just brought into this project. This is a classic 30s Depression era song uh-huh. about how songs are good for you. What's a great way to get that message across? Maybe a song. With a smile and a song Life is just like a bright sunny day Your cares fade away And this is a beautiful melody. I mean, I really like this melody. Again, the aesthetics of an earlier era, but such a convincing case for it. And this bird, the little bird on her finger that she sings back and forth with, I was listening and thinking, how did they do this? Is this with an instrument or something pitched up? Or I think it's just a very skilled whistler. So then I looked into it to see who did whistling in Disney movies. There were some popular high-level whistlers in the 30s. It was uh, prime time for professional whistling. (laughs) Even the voice actors aren't credited, so the whistler definitely isn't credited, but it seems likely to have been this guy, Elmo Tanner. What do you think? Is this the same whistler? I mean... Could be. I'd like to think so. You'd like to think so. You know where I can stay. And so then she sings a verse of it, and then it goes into the sort of dance arrangement second verse as she drifts through the woodland with all of the creatures around her. And she's not walking in a realistic way at all. She's doing all of these poses, but you go with it because it's somewhere in between dance and performance like the whole movie. Mm Mm-hmm. I think this arrangement is also great. It's two steps toward a 30s pop arrangement with these muted trumpets. It's just got that radio sound beautifully done. And she, her movements, we haven't even mentioned, she was performed, because all of this is all rotoscoped, she was performed by Marge Champion, then Marge Belcher, the famous dancer. Did you see where it said, because the movement was done by Marge Belcher and the voice was done by Adriana Casalotti, that some of the animators referred to Snow White as uh, Mariana Belchelotti? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. (laughs) So it transitions, direct segue from the end of Whistle While You Work to Hi-Ho, which, uh, you know, is intentional because it's kind of parallel subjects of, you know, the happy working song. Right. In particular, I found that the ingenuity of accompaniment here for Hi-Ho, because obviously it's a repetitive song, but for each successive verse of Hi-Ho, Hi-Ho, it gets a slightly different treatment that they're all so effervescently lovely. Yeah, I'm glad you highlight that because to me that is a classic case of the uh, level of craftsmanship, the perfection of arrangement that went on yeah. in that time. I-ho, 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 the stuff that you hear in between the phrases of hi-ho, mm-hmm. again, I respond to it without hearing the notes or the technical quality until I really fight to hear it. That they go hi-ho, da-da-da-da, hi-ho, da-da-da-da. Right. Hi-ho, hi-ho. 
I don't hear those as trumpets doing triplets. I just hear it as color that infuses everything. It's all about infusing. Yeah. It's like, you know, on a painting, uh, like an oil painting, where the last couple of dots of paint added will be like a little bright white dot that makes the eye look wet. Uh You know, it makes it look like the sun is shining from this angle. When those little dots of white are in just the right place, like magic happens and you no longer can see paint. And I feel like some arrangements, especially from this era, have that quality for me. And this hi-ho. Hi-ho, hi-ho, it's home from work we go. I feel like I have almost a, you know, I don't know if this counts as um, synesthetic response, but I have almost like a sense of something sculptural or physical. Like, those things just give it bulk. They give Mm -hmm. it a certain kind of body. Yeah, you're right. It's the framework. It's the texture. It's the stuff. It's It's the stuff. It's the stuff. Yeah. 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 And what kind of stuff is it? Delicious, high-quality stuff. I think I said that about corn gold, that it's all tasty. It has a kind of mouthfeel to it, you know? Yes, you did. You, you used eating metaphors a lot in corn gold when you were talking yeah, about that. Yeah, that's how orchestration, you know, good orchestration feels to me. like Mouthfeel. Yeah, is this a chewy yeah. cookie? Is this a crunchy cookie? It's tasty, yeah. These are good cookies in this movie. It's true, it's true. I mentioned before that the sense of all-encompassing necessity of it seems like a really important concept to Disney and to the Disney universe and the Disney corporation. I mean, this is what Disneyland feels like. I kept thinking of actual Disneyland while I was watching this movie, the way that the wondrousness and the fun, cute energy that teems out of the very fabric of nature requires this music to be coming out of everywhere. Well, that's why there's music coming out of the rocks and the bushes in Disneyland. And that's why it feels that way there, because the all-encompassingness of it is so important. And as I said, people didn't think that there was necessarily going to be a there there if you made a full-length animated feature, because they had never been to Disneyland. This whole... yeah concept of where your mind goes and what kind of experience you're having is the creation here that we've all gotten accustomed to it's just become another continent in the artistic space and you know how they famously the the academy gave him a special oscar with mm-hmm. the seven dwarf oscars and shirley temple gosh mr disney Isn't it great, oh it's beautiful aren't you proud of it mr disney I'm so proud, I think I'll bust. (laughs) They did that. If you think about why they would do that, like, well, we have all these categories, but this thing happened in movies this year. Right. We would be remiss not to note that, like, a new continent of movies was just discovered. So here's a statue to acknowledge that. About Hi-Ho, it's such, such a simple song. And that's what Frank Churchill's gift was. Simple melodies. You said in a previous episode that the hardest thing is to make things that sound like they are inevitable and have always been there. Yes. And he did it one after another. Absolutely. This is the stuff that I am in awe of because try writing something simple. Just try it. It's so hard. It's so hard to get just the right combination of obviousness and simplicity without it sounding too dopey, without it sounding, excuse me, dopey, without it sounding hackneyed but necessary. It really is a gift that you almost have to try to write a simple song to appreciate. I think that is the first song, or one of the earliest songs I can remember, noting what each note did and why. Why? I mean, (laughs) just why in musical terms, like it goes hi-ho, 
hi-ho, and now we got to go up here, da, 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 and now we're here, and then we have to do this business because we're not done yet, and now we're ready to start again. You know, this sense of the logic of phrases mm-hmm. and each note of the scale is serving its essential role in the phrase structure. What Churchill is doing there is such ABC's first song for kids kind of stuff because absolutely everything it does is is correct and necessary. <laughs> yeah. And the lyrics have a lot to do with it too. The lyrics have to land at the right point in the phrase. So, all right, let's talk about the next song. I think it's the next song, right? Someday My Prince Will Come? It comes after the silly song that we already mentioned. Oh, right, right. First, there's the two goofball songs. Look, this is my one complaint about this movie. <laughs> there's two goofy dwarf songs that are somewhat similar to each other, and I feel... You mean little... the washing song? I was going to mention the washing song when we were talking about the kind of recitative quality of speaking when the music is telling you what melody the person might be singing if he were to be singing this. Right, they barely sing a note in there. Here we song. go. Step up to the tub. Hey, no disgrace. Just pull up your sleeves and get them in place. Then scoop up the water and rub it on your face and go... I think I read that in the case of Doc singing the washing song, it was because that actor wasn't comfortable singing, so he kind of Rex Harrison did. Yeah, which... Uh, I guess Rex Harrison uh, docked it. Yeah, I'm sure that's what he had in mind. Why <laughs> can't the English learn how to go... <laughs> so you know that song is called Blood Dum, even though they never say Blood Dum because they say... But you hear in the orchestra what was written is that uh, he puts water on your face and go... Right. Someone made the inspired choice to have them just go... <laughs> but the title of the song is still Blood a Little Lumdum. I was going to say Washing Song. Uh, it's also Washing Song, yeah. Yeah, well, I think I had some Disney songbook when I was a kid, you know, to play at the piano. And this was in there, and it seemed like, what is that? That's not us. I don't remember this song. <laughs> when, when did they sing this song? Because they don't quite sing it. It's sort of a sequence with a song-like quality to it. But it's not the only goofy song that they sing. It's also not the only song about washing and cleaning up. It just seems a little... All right. I mean, you need to spend a certain amount of time with the dwarfs. It's the correct thing for the movie to have this time. And then they do the silly song, right? Which is... Uh, Delightful. I mean, you know, Dobie dancing on Cece's shoulders with Snow White. Iconic. You know, everlasting. Yeah, and it's a beautiful feeling of a cozy get-together yeah. in the warm cottage. And it's a bonding scene. Did you know there's a cut verse from the silly song where... Uh, it's like a dirty... Yes. Sneezy <laughs> implies that he has pooped in his own beard. <laughs> So they cut it. Is that true? Yeah, he says that when he was born, he was naked. So to keep neat and tidy, he used his beard as a tidy. But he gets interrupted before he says tidy. The minute after I was born, I didn't have a night. So I tied my whiskers round my legs and I used them for a dye. A D. A D. I think it was correct. To I cut. agree it was correct to cut it. <laughs> I find that almost as funny as I find what's my favorite gag in the movie is when they're going to sleep and they're all sleeping around in the kitchen and whoever it is uh, uses Dopey's butt as a pillow. Oh, there's a lot of butt humor <laughs> in he Disney. Picks up the butt, he fluffs it. He, <laughs> he fluffs the butt. And look, in the bar sheet, I've got this called up here. <laughs> it's written out. <laughs> 
it's written out in strict metrical time bar 177 of this sequence. There's all this technical information around it, and it says Ray's Fanny. Yeah. Then Pats and Pokes Fanny. It's written right here in the score. Yeah. Oh, there's a bunch of Fanny Wiggles. They, they love that stuff. You know, animators love anything. So if he's can... using that as a pillow, he has to fluff it. Glad you found something to enjoy. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, okay, so then, did you see uh, when that interviewer asked Harleen how much music it is, and he says, oh, 1,500 pages, and then he says, yeah, it's 80 minutes of movie, and the longest spot without music is 22 seconds long. Is this that spot? This is that spot, when the dwarfs say, why don't you sing a song now? Well, what shall I do? Tell us a story. Yes, tell us a story. A true story. A love story. I was wondering whether it was this spot or the spot when they're coming back to their cottage to discover that she's there and they're talking about what to do about it. That's the only one that's comparably close. But yeah, we should say this is the score that's closest to the full length of the movie of anything we've talked about. It is wall to wall. It is the whole time. Yes. So then there's this one little gasp of air while the dwarfs say, all right, we're ready for the good song now. (laughs) I mean, it's a good song. It's a wonderful song. And in terms of inventing Disneyland. Yeah, that's true. It's in here, don't you think? Yeah, it is. Someday my prince will come. Someday we'll meet again. And the way to his castle. So the other Churchill songs in this are, to one degree or another, simple in their affect. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the charm. And this one, he goes higher in terms of his references. It sounds a little like a Tchaikovsky or some kind of 19th century romantic emotional structure. I think it's the only song that is in triple time in the movie. Hmm, that might be so. Which is so important to its feel that it's waltzing along. You can feel it, you know, spinning. You want to dance to it. Yeah, it has that kind of falling mm-hmm. into something feeling. And it's definitely more harmonically complex than hi-ho and it's ilk. Yes, it has these chromatic rising leading tones in the first two phrases. Right. Someday, da-da, da-da. And then another one. And that leads you quickly through the sort of emotional disturbance of that rising to a minor chord. That's a minor chord, and I think the sentimentality of it is right there. It's a song of yearning, which is to say unresolvedness, uncertainty. Mm-hmm. The first stop on the trip is this traditionally sad sound. My Then it goes even further from there. No, no, I'm not even kidding. No, son. And only after it goes over that hill do we see that it might uh, settle down into the major chord where we're heading. But it takes the whole phrase to settle down, and then it starts again. It matches so stirringly Mm -hmm. with the lyric as it goes along. And that particular form of being stirred matches in a deeply affecting way. This is the Disney magic with this whole undertaking of the animated movie in praise of the inner child. I feel like the question with Disney is always, with things that approach kitsch, the question with kitsch is always, is this kind of a self-pitying thing that adults do to sanctify childhood and cupie dolls? 
aren't babies so wonderful. We've all lost our innocence, weep a tear. (laughs) And I feel like this approaches toward it and then doesn't force the case. It doesn't make you uncomfortable with it. It doesn't make me uncomfortable with it. It makes it feel like she's hoping for this thing. Someday her prince will come. And the first thought is, "Uh uh-oh. And then the second thought is, the feeling is rising. And then it eases, it clears in the second half of the phrase. Something about that structure feels so unforced. It feels like it's not contrived. It's an actually natural way to experience those feelings. And I note that it was deemed apparently so essential to the magic of what this company had managed to do that in the next movie, when Harleen was left to be in charge, he wrote the probably even better song, When You Wish Upon a Star. When you wish upon a star. basically walked exactly the same path again because he wanted to make sure they did exactly the same thing again. Anything your heart that song also has those leading tone chromatic effects. Yeah. It's the same. You can play When You Wish Upon a Star at the same time as Someday My Prince Will Come. I'm surprised it's not done more. Yeah, you can do it if you start on the third bar. Ah, you have to start on the third bar. Yeah, all right. Someday my... Because that one has a slightly different sentimental relation to its lyric. Because in that one, when you wish upon a star, and then it's already answered by the second phrase. Makes no difference who you are right away. Mm -hmm. Question, answer. And so it's more hopeful, but it still starts on that beat of reminding you that hope doesn't come without purpose. You have to direct yourself toward it. There are sad feelings floating around and you have to work your way through them to this hopeful place. But it gets there on the turn of the phrase, whereas this one takes the whole phrase. Someday, someday. And yeah, this comes around as an apotheosis of all this at the very end. Okay, so can I uh, can I play some jazz versions? Oh, sure. You got good ones? Oh, yeah, the best. So like some other, you know, songs and themes that have been in some of these old movies we've talked about before, this tune had another life as a jazz standard. Yeah, it was 20 years after the movie that this was brought into that sphere by my favorite guy, Dave Brubeck, on his seminal album, Dave Diggs Disney, 1957. Right away got picked up by, you know, all of his great contemporaries. Bill Evans has a version. Miles Davis put out a whole album called Someday My Prince Will Come. So here's Miles playing it. The next generation of great jazz pianists here is both Herbie Hancock and Chick Corea playing a four-hand piano duet improvisation on this song. It has that thing that is worth exploring in this way. It has that combination of simplicity and necessity and where it goes 
but taking you through some interesting places along the way. Yeah, it's got changes that really communicate. It's got changes. And so that's what a jazz standard needs is those changes, you know, so that you can improvise on those changes and it still sounds like the song when you're not playing the melody anymore. And it's pretty much the only song in this movie that's like that. If you took the notes away from hi-ho, it's just very normal chords. They don't signify that much. But this is a set of chords that actually tells the story in the harmonies. And then the melody, as with all the other Churchill melodies, is just right on. Mm -hmm. So then there's no more new songs. There's a bunch of dramatic scoring for the Queen. We've already stepped over. I want to give a shout out to the scene where the Queen turns into a witch. That is some scary stuff Mm -hmm. and the music is doing it. When she looks at that potion and you hear this you know, the chromatic back and forth around one note. The hypnotic effect of that is really good. Now, begin thy magic spell. I understand why she needed to take a potion to transform herself from the, you know, fairly attractive queen into the ugly old hag. But why does she need a potion to change her clothes? Why can't she just change her clothes? And my notes of stupid things to talk about, Mm -hmm. several sentences about exactly this. Oh, go ahead, please. I would love to hear your stupid sentences. No, I'm just saying we're on the same page here, John. Okay. To shroud my clothes, the black of night. To shroud my clothes, the black of night. She uses, like, black witch's magic to have different clothes. Yeah. To change her queenly raiment to a peddler's cloak. Yeah, surely a queen of her stature could just, like, ask somebody for a peasant's cloak. Well, what occurred to me is that thing she's wearing is, I could believe, pretty hard to get out of. It's like <laughs> this skin-tight wetsuit thing over her face. I, I don't know how you actually take that off, so. Maybe she uh, has a potion that she drinks every night to put on her pajamas. <laughs> and she thinks she's going to take another potion when she gets home that's going to turn her back? If so, why why doesn't she take a most beautiful in the land potion? (laughs) That's such a good question. (laughs) Yeah, why doesn't she take, I don't know, maybe there's limits to magic. I mean, I guess you have to make up limits to magic if you're making up magic. But yeah, why can't she just, all right. Also in her books on her (laughs) shelf, she's got the book Astrology. She's got the book Black Arts. She's got the book Alchemy, and she's got this book Black Magic that at the base of the spine says death. <laughs> so that either is the death volume yeah. from the Black Magic the encyclopedia. set, yeah. or it's by author death, No, no. or it's from the death publishing house. Uh, I'm going with the former. It's the death volume. She only has one volume from the Black Magic set. It's the only one that concerns her? No, that's... The rest are on uh, one of her shelves, like in her study, but like those are her like... Uh, active cookbooks that she's got on her little shelf there so she brought it down from the full set upstairs i see so then there's the big climax where this is where i imagine john barrymore shaking in his chair with excitement because they're somehow blending it all together we're cutting back and forth from the witch with the apple a serious, scary movie with this evil coming to kill her, which is scored with this serious, ominous, somber music. And the goofy movie with these funny dwarfs. Dwarfs are singing hi-ho. And then meanwhile, there's this straight out of a silent movie cheat book, is this hurry music for the animals. That's exactly what silent scores were all. Little pieces like that. What nails 
the montage, the editing back and forth between these things has been so carefully worked out that it convinces you these all go together here. You know, Grumpy, the dwarf named Grumpy, is now jumping on a deer to save Snow White from this evil witch, and that is dramatically legitimate, and all this music fits together. Wait for me! Wait for me! It all comes to a head and absolutely convinces you that this is a real artistic place we've gotten to. Mm -hmm. It's a cartoon, and it's serious, and it's scary, and it's goofy. Yeah, it's all of these things together. It's the putting together of all of these things. So I'm going to make my closing statement that this score seems to me, perhaps among all of the scores that we've talked about, to be the purest distillation of the thing that excites me about film music, the putting together. This is music that is wonderful and that has great tunes and yes, has very skillful orchestration, but the quality of the music is beside the point. (laughs) The artwork is the way that the music is conceived absolutely from its very inception in lockstep with a picture and with action and with story. The purity with which it's done that is, yeah, it's kind of breathtaking. Even if no particular second of music might be breathtaking music, you know, the way that some other music that we've considered in the past has been, but it's that particular endeavor of making up music in conjunction with story and picture and all everything that I said. It's it's the most. It's like the most it can be. What a, what a pleasure. Yeah. My closing statement, I will just justify playing the very end to closing statement with the closing music because that's a good idea why didn't i think of doing i could have been beefing up all my closing statements by happening to have them be about the very most climactic music (laughs) (laughs) wow i mean in some of the previous ones we've cheated it with the editing we've just played climactic music while we make closing statements which uh, no cheating no one has yet called us out for being horrible egotists but hey it makes it feel like the show's almost over it's a good feeling well that that is a good feeling yeah the ending you know When I was a kid, I think I saw, like I said, the beginning as a little bit of an old-fashioned playbook. And I felt the ending as kind of like, all right, now the action's over. And then the kiss of true love and a castle in the sky uh, has to happen. This was my first time looking at the score and thinking it really is a score. At least at this ending, it is a score that has something to explain about the movie. When he leans in for the kiss, we hear these da-da-da-da which is sort of what was used to set up the whole story at the beginning. Is this sense of stepping back and looking at fairy tales, the whole idea of the fairy tale. And then the final reprise of Someday My Prince Will Come, Harlene has a bunch more Tchaikovsky tricks to pull. He goes through several up and up and up modulations, and each one comes off, doesn't feel like just some rigmarole, feels like, oh, I know why that's happening. Because now it's the jump for joy. Now she's saying farewell to them because she's going off. You know, this was some kind of trial. Every fairy tale is some kind of coming of age that you'd have to go through. And now she's going on. And then up and up and up and then. 
slow, slow, slow down for the biggest version. This, like, Tannhäuser effect it has become a pseudo-quasi-religious vision of this castle floating in the sky where she's going, and I think Walt and company are saying, you can make a religion of this, as it were. Mm. You can and should devote yourself to the sanctity of your innocence. I think Walt really believed in that. I remember as a kid feeling like I was being inundated with adult praise of the power of imagination and fantasy is so wonderful. And as a kid, you just live with that stuff all the time. It seems like, why is anyone even talking about this? It's like adults are like, you have to play with toys. Like, yeah, I'm playing with toys. But I don't think this movie was for kids. It's sort of trying to blur the line between childhood and adulthood concepts in culture. And I think Disney successfully changed how that line works mm -hmm. for all of us. And the music at the end here, in its shameless way, seizes on big Wagner gestures to say this was something big. Even if you think, yeah, that's kitsch, that's tacky, that's not a good emotional message, whatever. They have made that message. It's sort of amazing like that he feeds out this movie with blood, blood, lumdum in it into that this has all been something holy. Mm. And the music gets you all the way there. Whether or not you like it, you can't deny that they went for something pretty astonishing there. Mm. And at the end of this movie, I was astonished yeah. by the musical experience that it had been. Yeah, here, here. Everything about this feels so ingrained that it has always been there. But yeah, to think about actually setting out to build it when it hadn't been there yet, almost hard to get your head around. Okay. Okay, let's do something else. Let's do something else. All right, I got the bucket here. We're going to get something newer. We're going to perhaps get something more adult rating. Who knows? The bucket contains multitudes. All right, I'm reaching into the bucket, and someday my next movie will come. And it is... Ooh, we're going uh, quite a ways back towards the present. 1998 for... John Carigliano's score to The Red Violin. Interesting. I haven't seen it. I know that it's a movie about classical music with a classically ambitious score that I know Carigliano made a bunch of concert pieces out of. Yeah, Josh Bell. Right, Josh Bell playing it and uh, Samuel L. Jackson looking at a violin. Oh, that's right, Samuel L. Jackson's in this. So this will be a score, a rare thing, by a concert composer, an established concert hall composer who added films to his portfolio after being successful rather than sort of making a name as a film composer first and foremost. So yeah, I'll be interested to hear uh, how daring he dared be. How dare he? I want to know. Let's find out how dare he. Let's find out. That was the 50th episode, John. We did it. Wow. 50. It's a lot. Somehow the number 50... It seems like it's an appropriate association with Disney somehow. Like The Disney company self-mythologizes a lot. Right. So yeah, one associates Disney with... Uh, with a jubilee yes, anniversary celebration. Self-celebration <laughs> is an important part of the Disney brand. So yeah, in true Disney fashion, this is the Platinum Collector's Edition really is. of uh, Settling the Score. Yeah. Hey, speaking of Platinum Edition, Settling the Score. Next up is the Red Violin. Maybe you'll hear from us before then. Yeah, we're considering uh, doing some stuff with the podcast. What is stuff that people do with their podcasts? Exactly that kind of stuff. Exactly that kind of stuff. We might be doing it. We told ourselves, if you do 50 of these, 
then you can do some of that stuff. So we might do some of that stuff. So you might hear from us about that before you hear about Samuel L. Jackson looking at a violin. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Encourage other people to tune. Yeah. Can't stay until you start. That's what I always say. Start tuned. (laughs) Certainly make sure you're tuned into our Twitter feed to catch anything that we have to announce. If you go to at score settlers, then you can talk back to us there about what you thought about things. And maybe there'll be other ways for you to talk back to us coming up soon, too, as well. Yeah, but always a great way to get our attention is uh, write a review on the podcast app because that most importantly gets the attention of other listeners which we appreciate absolutely and thank you very much to all those who've done that it means a lot yeah thanks for everyone who's listened to 50 episodes Mm. thanks for doing this with me Andy thank you thank you for going along with this remember I I had to force you to do it boy uh, how the tables have turned (laughs) All right, we'll be back with more we'll be back more of nearly the same next time we'll live happily next time if we could do a big closing a book at this point <laughs> imagine us closing a giant leather bound book that says settling the score on it and has the seal the royal seal of settling the score on the back farewell farewell